and welcome to the History Hotline. I am your host, Diana Lynn Cook, and we have a special guest in the building. Another guest. I feel like you're definitely being spoiled this month because guests on guests on guests, but I'm especially excited for this one. I say this about all my guests, but this guest, I've been waiting. I think before this podcast was even a thing, I wanted her as a guest on this podcast that didn't yet exist. So that is how much this has been preempted. So I just need you to feel the excitement that I am feeling right now. I have one of my best friends in the world, Pia. So maybe I'm biased, but maybe she's just fantastic. Um, Vanessa Stewart, welcome to the hi, History Hotline. Now, <laughs> Vanessa is not a historian, hmm. <laughs> but she is in some ways. Because as we know, the field of history and the discipline of history really does jump and span into different disciplines. You know, it's not just, you don't just study history and history, whatever subject you're looking Mm. at, you know, everything has a past and everything has a history. And when we look at, you know, the theme of migration as we're doing this month, we have to remember that migration is um, a theme that kind of falls into different disciplines. And one of those disciplines is politics geography um you know international relations and so we kind of have an expert in those kind of fields of of scholarship today in Vanessa so I'm going to tell you a bit about her and then we'll get into some questions about your research and find out why Vanessa is on the podcast today so Vanessa um she did her bachelor's at Queen Mary University of London in international relations graduating in 2018 went straight into her master's in global development futures in 2019 with a dissertation titled Conceptualising a Hidden Population, Narratives of Seychellois Migrants in the UK. And Vanessa's research across, I think, her, her undergraduate degree and her master's degree looked at the theme of migration in different global contexts, looking at Africa, um, looking obviously at the Seychelles um, and looking at, you know, different um, migrations across the world and also development in different countries and different settings. And so I think this is the reason why Vanessa is a perfect guest for today, Um, but especially because we are looking at the themes of migration and the way that community kind of is formed and the way that different groups have found themselves navigating British society, which is kind of what we look at on this podcast with the Windrush generation and with black people, Um, But how about the people that aren't necessarily classified in society as white or British may not fall into the category of being black, but how do they fit in? And so we have Vanessa here to talk about people from the Seychelles. (laughs) What an introduction. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of speechless. I think we should just wrap it up here and just leave it at that. (laughs) Your research has been, honestly, the amount of people I've spoken to about your research that do similar things but never the same Mm. have said Mm. and you know with your research you will know this is this work is not being done so you are filling a gap that we don't know enough about and I think it was really important that I I had you on this podcast because as I said it's all well and good we think about the Windrush and Caribbean people and African people but um well said people from Seychelles are classified as African um but what are they so There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to break down today. I have in my mind a small history of the Seychelles. However, before we get into that, we're going to find out more about Vanessa. So, Vanessa, if you don't mind, I have some quick fire questions for you. Let's talk about maybe why you love history since we're here on a history podcast. Yeah, it's only it's only right, isn't it? Um, Indeed. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I just think history is juicy. 
you know it is really yeah. really juicy it's a good bit of tea <laughs> we love a bit of tea so you know it, it is that really um but what it does is that it allows us to understand a lot more um to process what has happened to empathize with that but ultimately also to advance from that and move on from those things as well but um you know process those learnings yep. as well definitely yep. absolutely okay and if you had to pick one what would your favorite historical time period be i suppose because of your history <laughs> and um i guess my personal experiences well really my parents personal experiences and my grandparents because i'm a 90s baby but it would be post world war ii yep. britain i think that is a key um significant time for um black people in the uk more yeah, broadly um so i definitely do um have a lot of interest in that, I like era. that yeah perfect and then do you have a favorite historical figure you know the first person that jumped out to me was frank spannon and yeah. i think that's because of I, I didn't really study him in great depth at uni but we definitely yeah. did cover some of the text and that was the first thing that popped out to me actually I yeah, thought his definitely. yeah I think the work is just revolutionary really um yeah and he writes I think he writes like kind of no one else yes, or it was exactly. the first thing I read that was sounded like that where I felt yes. kind of like seen in a way yeah 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 definitely um and then we kind of have spoken about your research interests but how is it that you came to decide to study the Seychelles it's a bit of a leading question. I just want you to talk about your yeah. life. <laughs> but yeah, why did you pick the Seychelles? Um, did it follow on from your undergraduate research or was it a complete departure? Um, it was a complete departure. Um, I think at undergraduate level, and I'm sure you and plenty of people listening in, they will appreciate that undergrad, you are still quite limited in yeah. your yeah. kind of creative freedom as a researcher and as a writer. And I think really, you know, it's you're not limited completely, obviously, but when you get to kind of postgraduate levels, you have a bit more freedom and a bit more ownership over where you want to take your research. So for me, I just kind of wholly embraced that. And I was very conscious of the fact that the Seychelles, uh, the Seychelles migrants in the UK have been under-researched I yeah. say have because I've now done a little bit of research but still <laughs> under-researched um and I wanted to fill this gap a little bit and obviously you've mentioned it already but it's important to acknowledge that this piece of work is incredibly personal to me um and as a researcher and it's important to know my positionality within this work um so I'm of dual heritage my mother is from Seychelles my father is from Jamaica um yeah using this research, I chose to conduct semi-structured interviews and that created a space for really personal accounts to emerge um, because the conversations flowed really well. So I won't go into all of that because that's all to do with my methodology, but it was a lot of detail. A lot of ground was covered. Um, I had 22 and a half thousand words, but I definitely would have liked double <laughs> or wow. triple that because so much was covered, you know, and um, as you said already, the thing that really struck me from the beginning was the lack of research in this area. Um, I mean, non-existent. Uh, now, forgive me, obviously times have changed. I conducted this research a few years ago, but at the time um, there was literally nothing on Seychelles migrants in the UK, absolutely nothing. And we both know that there's endless amounts of research 
in, uh, about migration discourse more broadly, um, massive integration, assimilation, personal reports, accounts, etc. The list is endless, but none of this or none of what I had access to covers Seychelles migrants explicitly or in great detail. Yeah. Um, so by that, I mean, there were basic statistics on Seychelles arrivals to the UK okay. and the Seychelles was referenced on um, our embarkation cards and stuff like that. But that was literally it. <laughs> so you can imagine um, for me personally, the realisation of that was absolutely huge. Um, and I remember, you know, sitting with my supervisor, sitting down and, you know, we we're looking at each other like, hmm, okay, mm. this might be the first of its kind, you know, wow. <laughs> and that has massive implications, you know, because I couldn't draw direct comparisons, so to speak. And whereas the Windrush generation, for example, which you've researched a lot, Diana, there are multiple accounts and experiences, but I didn't have that. Um, so in my literature review, I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that I'm trying to well, I did situate um, the narratives of Seychelles migrants within the broader discourse mm. um, and just trying to introduce that. But yeah. it was, I suppose, a bit of a daunting um, realisation for me. But yeah. daunting is probably not the right word, I'd say, because I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my um, MA dissertation, yeah. the whole experience, really. But knowing that there wasn't anything else out there like that, definitely added some weight um, yeah, some serious weight to what I was doing um so a huge sense of responsibility an overwhelming sense of pride but um ultimately I was working to put my people in the discourse exactly wow and I think that is so important because I that's why you know these disciplines need the kind of diversity of thought because mm. you know it would have it wouldn't it had to be you to write that in the way you mm -hmm. wrote that based off of who you knew potentially who you had access to who felt comfortable sharing their stories with you and not everybody could have written that research and definitely not in the way that you wrote it and so I think the as you said you know you have to place yourself um, within this research as the researcher but also I think it's important that we understand that researchers historians geographers you know political scientists whoever is doing this research has a position yeah. I think we should go into, you know, the country of the Seychelles. I can't lie to you, um, Vanessa, you are the first person I've ever met from the Seychelles. Um, and I'd heard of the island and I knew it was an island. And I can't lie to you, I don't think I really knew where. Several islands, several islands. Wow. Yeah. You, okay. Here we go. The learning begins. Um, yeah. So I knew that it was in my head, right? I wasn't sure if it was around Africa or around like Asia slash Australia in my mind I didn't I just knew it was like over there mm. that made sense it wasn't I knew it wasn't near the Caribbean I just knew it was the other side probably equator -y, a bit below but yeah that's all I knew and I think maybe listeners might feel the same way um so I did some little googles found mm. out that it, it's in the Indian Ocean mm. on the eastern edge of the Somali Sea so like just kind of east of East Africa so islands over there, um, population under 100,000, around 98,000. So quite small, but then for an island, quite islands, quite big, but then I guess spread out over islands, yeah. still quite small. Is it kind of like everybody knows each other vibes? 
definitely that. yeah definitely those kind of vibes yeah okay so if this reaches the um Seychellois community you know everybody will know <laughs> well, basically, yeah basically well. everybody knows each other by their family name uh, okay name usually yeah, yeah and areas sense. and stuff so historically with in terms of like people and migrations I've got that it was kind of in uninhabited prior to the Europeans in the 16th century and then we have the French and the British colonizing um but kind of ends up in the hands of the British and then independence happens in 1976 and then the story kind of goes from there I think that was a solid summary. yeah I think so that was my you know my contribution to this podcast episode the rest is up to you <laughs> um yes and that it's it's difficult to really kind of conceptualize because yeah, you're you're yeah, imagining yeah. a place that, like you said, has no native population. People are brought over there, but yet there is that kind of colonial history. There is a history of rulers yeah. um, and influence, and that has had lasting impacts on the generations after that. Wow. Um, and then questions of culture come into this as well: how cultures were formulated, beliefs and values. Yeah, massive influences from. Europe really um and those still resonate today I mean even the capital Seychelles is Victoria wow (laughs) and there's a small little big Ben in the middle of the capital by the roundabout yeah and so these things are lasting legacies right um so I think the debate around um kind of the culture in Seychelles and Creole people yeah is very interesting because we're all very mixed and I think the idea is that we are just kind of an amalgamation of different really different peoples different cultures and beliefs all mixed together and that is I think partly to well heavily uh, linked to the fact that there wasn't a native population there beforehand wow that's so interesting it's like they colonized a land but not necessarily a people yes wow and interesting also because it's not a country in, as in, sorry, it's a country, of course. It's not a country, like, within Africa, so it's not part of that landmass of Africa and the continent. It is a series of islands. Yeah, and I think that that reflects the diversity that is seen in Seychelles today, the fact yeah. that it is yeah. kind of off the main landmass of Africa as a continent. Yeah. It's in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Like you said, you wasn't sure whether it was part of Asia, was it part of Africa? Yeah. And this is yeah. a very common kind of misunderstanding in a way. Um, but it also is testament to the fact that, well, sorry, it evidences really that there have been multiple influences that have come through, whether that is from parts of Asia, South Asia, parts of Africa. And now you have this kind of mixture of peoples um, which exist now in the Seychelles. Fantastic that is the stereotypes but of you know the African nations it has the highest GDP I believe mm-hmm. um, and also it's like one of the two African countries classed as like high income yeah so of all the countries would be classes developing um, if that term's used I know that's quite a problematic term in some in some ways how kind of I guess does Seychelles then not match up to Africa but is it because it's an island and it is geographically separated and now in some mm. ways I guess you could say financially separated um, mm. because it doesn't fit necessarily those tropes is Seychelles positioning any different like is that maybe the reason why we don't think about it in the same way we think about the solid African continent as a block that's interesting um, <laughs> a very interesting question I would say 
yes, there are definitely some differences. and that, But I think that's also largely, yeah, like you said, it's due to the geopolitical position of the Seychelles. And I think the strategic interests as well, uh, the connections they have with um, the Middle East and um, parts of Asia, and also what they rely on as well as as a country so they are heavily reliant on travel and fishing industry um so fishing we export a lot of our produce um out of the seychelles and obviously with regards to tourism we rely on a lot of travelers to come in Mm. seychelles is a very kind of idyllic destination hotspot for honeymooners and the regular holiday goers you know um So they rely heavily on that. And obviously that has been impacted most more recently, sorry, yeah. with COVID yeah. as with many other countries. Um, but looking at its position with Africa, that is very interesting. And perhaps I need to give that some more thought. But I do think it is different in some respects. But the size of Seychelles must also be considered too. It is a very small nation um, with uh, under 100,000 people there. Yeah. So yeah. that has to be factored in when you look at kind of debates around development or mm. the pace of development if we're going to phrase it in that way um they haven't got surrounding countries around them so they don't face certain challenges that other countries in africa do whereas the seychelles is literally in the middle of the ocean so in that sense the world is their oyster they can trade quite easily and ship goods outwards so i think there's key um differences yep. to be aware of Wow, yeah. interesting. I feel like already we could just end it there. I've learned so much. <laughs> just kidding. So thinking about your research then um, and thinking yeah. about people now, let's let's move and um, slightly away from the island as just an island and let's put some people there and let's put a community kind of a face to the community, shall we say. Um, sure. And your research was titled, so conceptualising a hidden population. I'm assuming the hidden is referring to the fact that they aren't under-researched within British scholarship especially and you know this narrative of migration from people from the Seychelles to Britain had not really been recorded um, and thus was hidden Um, and you're you're um, exploring the narratives um, of these of these people Um, and having read your research which is absolutely fantastic and maybe maybe as a listener you'll be able to read it too one day um, but thinking about the fact that you broke your research down into looking at the different kind of generations yeah so for some people they don't like using those kind of rigid binaries of first generation second generation but for me just for research purposes and it was a kind of ease really to um group people in that group my participants sorry in that way so when i referenced the first generation migrants in my research i'm referring to the parents and also the young children that came over at the time so broadly just the first people that came over and the second generation migrants I'm looking at the offspring of those people ultimately yeah Yeah. that makes sense I think in America actually they have a term called like the 1.5 generation or the one and a half and that refers to like um, say children that came over from Mm. said country um, at a young age but were educated through the American system so they're kind of first generation, but they're not because yeah. they grew up and were educated in the country that they've moved to. Oh, yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was. I don't know how I ended up finding that out, but but quite an interesting um, kind of point to raise how schooling, I guess, can impact your socialisation into a country. And 
points to pick out from your research was this idea Mm -hmm. about this lack of identifiable community because Mm -hmm. you know when we think about the Windrush generation say this is the first big wave of black people so they're very identifiable you know you know who they are they according to the British smelt funny talked funny were loud Mm -hmm. whatever they had to say about them but they were an identifiable community you know within the Seychelles there's not when I think of the Seychelles I don't think of a person looking a certain way Um, I don't even think of a particular shade of skin colour necessarily um, Mm. because, as we've said, um, it was an inhabited island and then you have the French and the British and then you have the fact that it is an island in the Indian Ocean um, next to Africa. So, yeah, kind of um, talk us through this idea of it being an an identifiable community or lack of identifiable features. Sure. Um, So, as you said, this was kind of a key finding of mine in my research and ultimately the research confirmed what I thought already really Um, and like I said based on partly my own experiences in that sense um, of not kind of being aware of a migrant community so to speak so part of this and part of me theorizing this I had to question how we define a community um, and what are the staple features of a community Um, So this is an abbreviation, but Sheringham does a lot of work in this area. And this scholar argues, uh, what states that migrant community infrastructure is typically epitomized through the establishment of businesses, shops, community spaces, or places of worship that ultimately resemble a likeness to the given heritage country or countries. So I think that's a pretty good working definition to apply here. and my research found that there was a lack of an identifiable community. And I made three assertions ultimately. So I'll just talk through all three of those because I think that'll be quite easy to kind of summarize it. The first reason that I um, state in my research is to do with the suspected scale of the Seychelles diaspora. And this has significant implications. So in the absence of official statistics, we can only speculate that the diaspora will amount to a small fraction of the overall Seychelles population of 98,000. So in my research, I reference the embarkation cards from 2011 and 2012. Um, and these indicated that the most, that most of the immigration, sorry, from the Seychelles was directed to Europe. However, the country stated only provides an indication as the final destination country could change over the course of the journey. So if we take 2011 as an example, then the embarkation cards indicate that 692 Seychelles persons were headed to the UK. So contrast that with the wider population figures now. In 2011, the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, found that 7.5 million of the resident population in England and Wales were born outside of the UK. So if we apply that data from the embarkation cards, which I emphasise is merely an indication Then in 2011, only 692 of the 7.5 million non-UK born population was Seychelles. Wow. (laughs) You guys are small. Yeah, yeah, real small. There's not many of us. So, you know, with that in mind, unlike other migrant communities, for example, the Seychelles diaspora doesn't necessarily have the critical mass Mm. in order to reproduce a Seychelles cultural space. Absolutely. the lack of people is significant and also I didn't I wasn't able to um, 
pinpoint where these communities were across the UK, but no doubt they're spread out, right? So that also is a factor because there's there's an element of distance between Seychelles peoples that are in the UK already. Um, And then the second kind of reason that I I reference is the significance of placemaking. So within migration discourse, there's a lot of discussions around the concept of placemaking, especially when considering super diverse neighborhoods. So within this diversity, you know, how do you sift through the noise? Mm -hmm. How do communities put their stamp on certain places ultimately? Um, And how do they assert themselves? How, what structures do they create, which they, you know, are used to define them? How do they make these spaces their own? Um, And one key observation here that I draw upon is from Pemberton and Fillmore. And they recognize that under such conditions, that is super diverse neighborhoods, no single ethnic group dominates, but rather people are unified by difference. So for me personally, I think that's exactly what happened um, with the with the Seychelles diaspora. I think they've found commonalities within the wider community. They've seen elements of themselves in others, whether that's to do with eating practices, religion, values, for example, And this has all contributed to the process in which I would argue um, that Seychelles migrants have demonstrated a a degree of affinity and they have ultimately blended into the super diverse landscape rather than asserting distinctiveness through the formulation of their own migrant community infrastructure. I think there's just been a kind of a general merging, so to speak, and they've kind of blended in. And that's why I chose the title a hidden population because I don't think they're easily identified in that sense yeah so it's kind of not a sorry to cut you a deliberate Mm. hiding by others it's people coming from the Seychelles in terms of the small numbers in terms of the no the kind of no real necessity to create spaces or as you said places of worship shops that kind of thing um, that has just led to them being hidden through no fault of you know anyone deliberately but it's just kind of incidental. Yeah, I, w- I would say so. And um, yeah. yeah, I would say so. And the last point that I make provides a kind of a reason for that as well. And I think it's important to note that this lack of uh, lack of community um, yeah. is linked to the efforts on behalf of the Seychelles government as well, and Ooh. their efforts to encourage return immigration um, through scholarship programs. So that's to do with students that go abroad, for example, to complete a degree and their scholarship um, is based on that and they're expected to return home. So in 2011 and 2012, education was the second most popular reason for Seychelles staying abroad. And I can't really imagine that that has changed much since then. And one of my participants explained how she is bonded to the Seychelles government. Once completing her studies, she is expected to return home to work and contribute to the economy. This is so, so important. This is absolutely huge because it links to other arguments around the brain drain, which is a really, yeah, I can see you like nodding away. Yeah. <laughs> this is a really common concept. And the brain drain 
for our listeners is to do with individual talent and ultimately the immigration of highly trained or qualified people from a particular country to another. And usually that is referring to people leaving their heritage country to a more well, I don't know why they're leaving. I can't say why they're leaving, but perhaps they think a, a different country is more progressive. I say in inverted commas or or whatever. So this idea of kind of um, losing their professionals and losing their really qualified people, um, this has been, you know, explored massively um, within migration discourse and other discourse as well. So it's a very um, common or popular concept, shall I say. So the Seychelles government plays a distant yet significant role in restricting the time spent abroad, which I think plays a significant role in preventing an identifiable migrant community from actually forming. So this is really important to know um, the kind of influence that they have from overseas and the expectation um, that students have to return and to support and to feed their nation and their economy and to contribute back home in that sense. Definitely. And maybe that then, you know, without me putting out some false truths, but maybe that then links to the kind of idea of um, Seychelles being mm-hmm. having this high GDP and being of a high income country in comparison to other African countries who do suffer from the brain drain. Um, same with Caribbean countries. So that's very interesting that um, I think Seychelles world government has kind of, I guess, clocked it and said well well no we have to protect you know our little island and our yeah yeah and I think don't get me wrong I think attitudes around that are changing um and who knows you know it might not be the same case in five ten years from now but referring to the participant that I mentioned before when I was speaking to her it was there was kind of a bit of a resentment there you know I'm, I'm bonded to the Seychelles government you know it's a strong word and that was the term that she used bonded so it's kind of then you have to kind of think well is this your choice is this somebody else's choice you know um so I think there is kind of a generational shift occurring it is really linked to where the students are as well and I think Seychelles is a very small nation as we've established um but to come from Seychelles and then live in London is a huge contrast to have that experience I think at university especially at a time usually at uni when you're so excited just to be doing something different to be meeting new people that um in a new environment is even more exciting right and probably even harder to turn away from the amount of people that we know that came to London they didn't want to go back home and I'm talking like a two-hour train (laughs) train away that's just an example you know of the kind of differences that we're referring to here really yeah yeah absolutely that makes complete sense and I think it again it it does really link back to to that title and I guess why it's so poignant that um, so, thinking then about um, people from Seychelles in in Britain, because I'm assuming not every single student goes back, or not every single person that comes over mm-hmm. is a student, and so might come later on in life, or as you said, as a child mm-hmm. in earlier days. Um, was there? You might not know the answer to this, and that's fine. But I guess I'm trying not to compare Mm. to the Windrush generation, but I guess it is my base of migration knowledge um, just from my own research. Was there maybe um, a time where there was the biggest wave or 
was there a particular I don't know event in the Seychelles that meant a lot of people were moving over to Britain maybe independence or was it just something that steadily happened over time because you know people move around all the time there doesn't have to be a political movement or shift yes is the simple answer what I found and not just in this research but okay I know now drawing on wider conversations that I've had um the movement of people from the Seychelles occurred under colonial rule under British rule and that was because it was seen as you were moving within the British crown colony and this was dependent upon Seychelles men and women being part of the army so this this gave them the access to move so a key um journey shall i say that was documented um in this study is the movement of one particular family from the seychelles to malaysia which under at the time was under british rule to cyprus (laughs) to another army base and then to the uk so this movement all occurred within um, the extensions of the colony, the extension, sorry, of the colony. Um, But I would say that would probably be between the 60s and 70s, I would say. That's so interesting because thinking about other groups, so South Asians um, from the Punjab region in a conversation I'm having, I had um, earlier today, but I guess if you're listening on the podcast, you won't (laughs) hear it till maybe next week or the week after. in this migration series but one of the reasons why that community came over and the the way the reason they felt that they could was their contribution to world war ii similarly with the windrush men um primarily that came on that first well not the first ship but the first big ship were ex-raf servicemen who came with the claim of well i worked here during the war and now i have a kind of not entitlement of course but you know i have a right to be in this mother country to continue my training my service or whatever yeah. and so very yeah, interesting exactly. that everything just connected and I, that's one thing about migration and why I wanted mm. to look at it as kind of a series this month is to draw out the similarities because you can't look at any one group's no. migration to this country in isolation you know they yeah. are all interlinked because of empire and until we I guess understand um, the power and the widespreadness if that is a word of empire it's quite difficult to then understand some of the things you've spoken about in terms of like creating community and assimilation into British society and kind of what happens next when said people from said place land or arrive in Britain. I want to talk to you about chapter six Mm. uh, of your dissertation. Everyone's probably thinking, well, what happened in chapter six? Well, I'll (laughs) tell you the title, am I a part of Britain or is Britain a part of me? This chapter, I think is probably one of my favourite ones. Um, It definitely kind of brings everything kind of together. Um, But interestingly, and I've mentioned earlier on in the podcast, there is a dislocation between the older and younger members of the first generation um, migrants. And that is to do with what you said about the influence of um, Britain in the Seychelles. Um, And what I look at, what I kind of uh, define it as is pre-integration into British and European society, ultimately. And I saw this happen, well, the accounts really um, kind of evidence that something had happened before, you know, um, that the, the, the kind of the extent of the influence of the British colony 
and European influences were so strong in the Seychelles, um, especially for the older members of the first generation migrants. So what I mean by that, let me elaborate a little bit more, is that their, their lifestyle in Seychelles ultimately prepared them in some ways and eased this process of integration and also instilled an unwavering sense of patriotism as well, <laughs> which is still, still, still very evident to this day, might I add. Wow. So the, ov- the older members of the first generation overwhelmingly reported positive experiences when they came to the UK. So, yeah. I mean, that alone. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Just stories. 1960s, 70s. Yeah. Right. In contrast to. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Everybody else. <laughs> Basically everyone else. <laughs> exactly. And these experiences were rooted in long established British identification. It demonstrates the extent to which colonial powers penetrated African nations at the time. If we look at 1960, for example, at that time, only 41,700 people were in the Seychelles. That's a very wow. small population and potentially maybe made it easier to diffuse ideas. It was occupied by the French beforehand, as we said, but under British colony between 1903 to 1976. So, you know, the people of Seychelles have been, are in a way, conditioned to British European life. Um, And for these participants in my study, this led to a lot of kind of self-assurance and the expectation that they Mm. will integrate because they just thought they were moving kind of from one British society to another. But importantly, 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 this is linked to the experience of army living and army lifestyle. Um, And the fact that these individuals, they weren't really exposed to wider society. So they kind of maintain this British colonial army bubble, so to speak. Um, but importantly, and I'll, and I'll explain in, in a second, this was only for the parents because the children of the first generation, sorry, the children of that generation, um, went to school, yeah. which is what we said before, right. and therefore they were exposed to other social settings. So back to the yeah. parents now and the older members of the first generation, because they felt that they were moving from one British society to another, this kind of nostalgia for home this this longing for home was not explicitly expressed um and that's not to suggest that it was entirely absent i'm not suggesting that at all but this preconditioning to british life may have altered their expressions of nostalgia because home in the seychelles resembled a likeness to home in the uk um so then we link that back to the creation of community and there are huge questions over whether uh, the pioneer migrants, so the first migrants to come over, even felt the need to establish a community or not, because it was kind of the same, wow. you know, apart from the weather, yeah. of course. <laughs> but right. it was like very similar for them, you know. So there was a, a very evident dislocation between um, the parents and the children within the first generation. Um, so now looking at the younger members, common theme for them. Yeah which will resonate with many of the accounts of people at the time, is a lot of bullying. Um, And this is obviously reflective of wider societal attitudes at the time towards racial differences. Um, And therefore, 
I kind of explore how this impacted the way in which they embedded themselves within society and the way in which they negotiated this embedding um, and the forms it took in different domains and to different degrees. Um, And one thing that really came out, um, they, they all mentioned sport and sport as a coping mechanism and also an access point to other social spaces. Um, And it allowed them to develop social capital and friendships, et cetera. Um, So that was a way in which they um, were able to, I suppose, formulate their identities in a way, um, a sense of belonging to. And I think that was part of their way in which they felt part of Britain so to speak, because they were taking, they were actively yeah, taking part sense. in activities that they do at school, and this is kind of a very um, common thing yeah. to do. But then looking at the second generation migrants, so we're looking at the offspring now, who have gone through um, the British schooling system and have been raised here, uh, British born. This is all they know, really. Uh, the experiences were very different. The things that I really focused on. Um, or what came out of the findings, shall I say, is what they what they brought up in the, in the interviews, was more to do with their mixed heritage identities. Um, so this was the kind of key factor in how they felt as part of Britain, um, and also how they how connected they felt to their heritage country, which is Seychelles. Um, so yeah. for this generation. Um, the participants that were included in my study were of mixed heritage. So a handful of the participants, one parent was from Seychelles, one parent was from England, and then there were others that had a different um, combination. But let me focus on the ones that were um, of mixed heritage, Seychelles and English descent. They often uh, mentioned that their mixed heritage was often overlooked by the onlooker. And this is partly well, entirely really, to do with their complexion um, and their physical characteristics. And one participant explained uh, something that happened at school, um, which was quite interesting to document and to know. And she explained that once her mixed heritage was detected, the participant gained access to a particular social group that she'd previously been denied access to. She was incorporated into this group based on the criteria of sameness. But this was also ultimately dependent on okay. this group exercising a degree of selectivity as well. Yeah, of course. Another interesting finding that came out was also the significance of the family name. So this was especially interesting when considering the respondents that possessed a somewhat discrete migrant identity, which is what we were just talking about with regards to um, complexion and kind of being um, overlooked by the onlooker in that sense. Um, And so quite often their mixed heritage was undetected by others. So in this instance, quite often the marker of difference was actually the surname, um, having a more unconventional, un-English, you know, non-British sounding name creates ideas around what someone of dual heritage with a non-conventional name should look like, you know. Um, but yeah, it was very interesting to see that kind of emerge um, in the study as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, thinking about um, the kind of racialization, shall we say, of, of different groups of people that move into this country, because it is and it was the case that, you know, if you're not white British, mm-hmm. you are othered. 
And so this othering, at, you know, in the 60s, 70s, so on, it kind of others everybody else as black, whether you are, you know, from India, Pakistan, Seychelles, which is under mm. British rule in the 60s anyway. Um, so essentially British people coming over to Britain, but are othered yeah. by way of you weren't born here or are othered by, as you said, surname or othered by the fact that, you know, complexion might be slightly darker than a standard average white British person um, for whatever reason that might be. Um, and so I'm just kind of thinking now, I don't mean to be ignorant, but I just feel like I know what the listeners might be thinking at this point. Um, if you have the Seychelles, which has no um, you know, population mm. prior to the Europeans, and then you have French people and British people mm. who I'm assuming are all white. Where does the racial difference come in? I, I feel like yeah. I don't want to sound ignorant, but I kind of think people no, might be no, thinking no. this because I kind of am. And yeah, how does so, that all fit? So um, the variation was introduced ultimately through slave trade in a way. Um, so yeah. oh. again, another thing that's not really highly documented, but what is documented is the fact that um, the settlers did take people from the eastern parts of Africa so that's how you get the mixture so to speak um so it, it was born out oh of that goodness. um so that's why it's still very important to acknowledge that there wasn't a native population so to speak but people were still yeah. taken from Africa in the same kind of way not on the same scale obviously and from what no. I understand, it wasn't on the same scale as far as I'm aware. And I don't think the yeah. conditions were exactly the same. I think it was forced labour, indentured labour, slavery. They all mm. kind of, uh, there's definitely a bit overlapping there. So that's how the first, the kind of initial mix or mixture or difference um, was established. And then from then, I suppose, just more movement in that area and more people yeah, settling. Um, absolutely. And so that might then alter your perception of self knowing your ancestors were yeah. enslaved peoples or of European descent or a mixture probably in most yeah. in most cases. The slave trade in um, the Seychelles isn't well documented. I'm sure where people came from exactly. is pretty much unknown or exactly. maybe even destroyed. And that, we know how yeah. colonial... <laughs> like to erase history, yeah. <laughs> and that's why mm. I, I loosely said East, Eastern Africa because that's all I know. I, I, would, yeah. I can't pinpoint it. I mean, it might be somewhere, but um, from my understanding, it's Eastern Africa. The transatlantic slave trade obviously looks at the other part. It looks at the Western side of Africa and that movement across. But what about the other side? What about the movement to the other regions? Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, the cogs are whirring in my mind. I feel like I've just been blown away <laughs> on so many different levels. I love learning as we know and I'm passionate about educating other people but when <laughs> I get to learn an amazing day I didn't know a lot so much of that and I've read your dissertation and I've still learnt more so I'm honestly honoured really to have you here as our resident expert <laughs> on the show thank you not an expert wow. I mean you know when you asked me to to get involved in this I was genuinely blown away super honoured because I feel like I completed my master's and yeah. Unfortunately, I've yeah. kind of put it to the side and I haven't really looked at it much since, yeah. um, which is not great, obviously. And I, I, wanted, it to, I wanted it to be no, out no, there but... in that way. So I am yeah. Yeah, just so, Definitely. so grateful to be, even just have the discussion and just to kind of, yeah, explain the findings. I am honestly honoured to learn about all of these different waves of migration and different groups of people. And I think this angle from from this island is just so perfect and you were obviously the perfect person and you have put your work out there 
that is out there now in the world that bibliography you know those references whoever then needs to pick up that baton to continue this research can do so um and I think that's with all research like you know with any podcast episode that might be the start point for Mm. someone's future dissertation undergrad or postgrad or whatever level um or their own personal research you know who knows there might be people now that are inspired to just learn more about the Seychelles before we go before we close maybe let's have a little a minute think about Seychelles mm-hmm. today just give us a little bit about Seychelles today I know that I want to go there so if you'd like to sponsor my trip anyone listening PayPal account <laughs> is in the link in my bio but no tell us about the Seychelles mm-hmm. well obviously I'm a bit biased but it is truly truly beautiful um a wonderful wonderful place to be I have lots of fond memories in the Seychelles and hopefully we'll continue to make many many more um but yeah definitely on the bucket list um for many I think think for a lot of people it's on their bucket list to visit so um I highly recommend it um yeah the beaches are incredible um but I suppose there's been a kind of quite a a significant change in the Seychelles recently um end of last year they elected a new government um so this was the first um transfer of power sorry for the first time since 1977 um so the leader of the opposition party won um and this is the first opposition victory since independence from britain you know it's a signal of momentous change in the seychelles um a huge milestone um and they've kind of really demonstrated so far a commitment to reconciliation to working for the nation and embracing the younger generation Um, obviously time will tell and we'll soon see how this pans out. Um, with regards to COVID recently, I suppose the Seychelles was hit quite, was hit quite hard because um, yeah. of tourism and yeah. fishery, um, yeah. but their vaccination rollout yeah. has been incredible. Um, they were the first country in Africa to begin the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. They received donations mm. from UAE and also donations from India, uh, which is reflective of their close trade um, and cultural links with these countries. So strategic interests are at play there. So yeah, they're opening back up. And I think for them, it's very positive because like I said, they rely heavily on tourism. So um, having travellers come back in, I'm definitely a wonderful place to go. So if you get a chance, whoever's listening in your lifetime, do do go and visit. Yeah, well, you don't have to tell me twice. I'll be on the next (laughs) available plane when those PayPal donations come in. But honestly, thank you so much, Vanessa, for being a part of this episode and part of this migration series. Um, I don't know where this will be in the series as I am speaking to you, but I have a feeling it might start the series um, because I just think it's such a a perfect place for us to start thinking about migration discourse. Um, And it's just been explained so beautifully by you. So why not? Um, So, you know, stay tuned, you know, if you are listening. (laughs) No worries. Stay tuned for the other episodes. We'll be um, so. Just wanted to say thank you all for listening. Please follow on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn if you have it, um, and on the podcast platform that you like. Give us a follow, a like, and tell a friend, tell a friend about the history hotline. So from me and Vanessa, thank, thank you so you. much, and Bye. goodbye.